Welcome back every single person ever to the Hemingway List podcast, broadcasting live to the whole world. We're talking about chapter 86. Philip, for Philip, men equal attractive and women equal unattractive. I am a Norwegian said, all in one word, Philip was gay, which made me chuckle. That's like the little secret hidden message from a few chapters ago. Philip was gay. What could ever could that mean? We need to decipher this code. Um, you think Philip was gay? He does tend to describe every man as un um, um, as like uh, inarguably attractive. What am I trying to say here? Like he, whatever their fault is, he'll still be like, yeah, he had jaundice, but God, he looked good with it, and he may have had. Like, I don't know, what else would he say about that guy? He was describing how unattractive he was. Oh, yeah, he was saying he was, like, balding, but he still looked really good kind of thing. And then with women, it's just, like, they're just ugly. She had an ugly nose with an ugly face, and her ugliness was ugly. And even when he describes their attractive features, he does it in a weird way, like her thin, cold, wet lips or whatever he said about what's-her-face. Anyway, I found that amusing. Also, my other discussion prompt was this. Mellifluous is a good word. Mellifluous is a good word. Um, it is a good word. It means malif. Um, the etymology. I think we've actually talked about the etymology of this word before. Mel means honey in Latin. And um, the fluous bit is um, to flow. So it's to flow like honey, but it's describing not um, the flow of something, it's describing sound. So it's describing a sound in the way that it flows, in the way like honey flows. It's cron... What's the word when you mix up your senses? So you like hear color or you see smells or whatever there's a word for that and i can't think of it right now but that mellifluous is a word of that nature and i can't think of that oh what's the now i need to google that i don't even know how to google that what am i looking up um sense crossover synesthesia hey that actually worked synesthesia is the word synesthesia means um, perception phenomenon in which one stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway leads to an involuntary experience in a second sensory cognitive pathway. Um, yeah, that's a very confusing way to describe it. But mellifluous is a synesthetic word. It describes a sound using a descriptor of not sound. Cool. Anyway, I think that's an interesting word. It's one of my faves. Adrathea said this, I'm very sorry, I can't think of anything to say because I have read ahead. Oh, Adrathea, you've messed up. You have fallen out of step with the gang. Maybe you should wait for us to catch up. Laura Weistich said this, So this guy, I can't remember his usual, unusual name right now, is a copywriter. Oh, his name was like, what was his name? Hang on. Um, what was his weird-ass name? Weird-ass. Thorpe Athenley. 
um, he's a copywriter, but back then they called that journalism. I find that quite strange. Yeah, it was weird how he was like, I'm a journalist, have a look at my journalism, and then he showed him an ad. Um, weird, weird flex. All right, that's that. That's Conversation Street. We have walked it thoroughly. Let's walk down the next street, which is called Chapter 87 Road. And it goes like this. Ten days later, Thorpe Athenley was well enough to leave the hospital. He gave Philip his address, and Philip promised to dine with him at one o'clock on the following Sunday. Athenley had told him that he lived in a house built in by Indigo in, Inigo Jones, who had raved, as he raved over everything, over the balustrade of old oak. And when he came down to open the door for Philip, he made him at once admire the elegant carving of the lintel. It was a shabby house, badly needing a coat of paint, but with the dignity of its period in a little street between Chancery Lane and Holborn, which had once been fashionable but was now little better than a slum. There was a plan to pull it down in order to put up handsome offices. Meanwhile, the rents were small, and Athenley was able to get the two upper floors at the price which suited his income. Philip had not seen him up before and was surprised at his small size. He was not more than five feet and five inches high. He was dressed fantastically in blue linen trousers of the sort worn by working men in France. Oof. And a very brown, old, very old brown velvet coat. He wore a bright red sash around his waist, a low collar, and for a tie, a flowing bow of the kind used by the comic Frenchman in the pages of Punch. He greeted Philip with enthusiasm. He began talking at once of the house and passed his hand lovingly over the balusters. Look at it, feel it. It's like silk. What a miracle of grace. And in five years, the housebreaker will sell it for firewood. He insisted on taking Philip into a room on the first floor where a man in shirt sleeves, a blousy woman, and three children were having their Sunday dinner. I've just brought this gentleman in to show him your ceiling. Did you ever see anything so wonderful? How are you, Mrs. Hodgson? This is Mr. Carey, who looked after me when I was in hospital. Come in, sir, said the man. Any friend of Mr. Athenley's is welcome. Mr. Athenley shows the ceiling to all his friends, and I. it doesn't matter what we're doing, if we're in bed or if I'm having a wash. In he comes. Philip could see that they looked upon Athenley as a little queer, but they liked him nonetheless, and they listened open-mouthed while he discoursed with his impetuous fluency on the beauty of the 17th century ceiling. What a crime to pull this down, hey, Hodgson, where you're the influential citizen. Why don't you write to the papers and protest? The man in the shirt sleeves gave a laugh, and Philip said, Mr. Athenley will have his little joke. They do say these houses are that insanitary. It's not safe to live in them. Sanitation be damned. Give me art, cried Athenley. I've got nine children, and they thrive on bad drains. Nope, no, I'm not going to take any risk. None of your newfangled notions for me. When I move from here, I am going to make sure the drains are bad before I take anything. There was a knock at the door, and the little fair-haired girl opened it. Daddy, Mummy says, do stop talking and come and eat your dinner. This is my third daughter, said Athenley, pointing to her with a dramatic forefinger. She's called Mariala, Mari, Maria del Pilar, but she answers more willingly to the name of Jane. Jane, your nose wants blowing. I haven't got a hanky, Daddy. Tut tut, child, he answered as he produced a vast, brilliant bandana. What do you suppose the Almighty gave you fingers for? 
They went upstairs and Philip was taken into a room with walls panelled in dark oak. In the middle was a narrow table of teak on trestle legs with two supporting bars of iron of the kind called in Spain Mesa de Hierriage. They were to dine there, for two places were laid, and there were two large armchairs with broad flat arms on oak and leather backs and leathern seats. They were severe, elegant and uncomfortable. The only other piece of furniture was a burro elaborately ornamented with gilt ironwork on the stand of ecclesiastical design, roughly but very well, finely carved. There stood on this two of the three luster plates, much broken but rich in colour, and on the walls were old masters of the Spanish school in beautiful though dilapidated frames. Though gruesome in subject, ruined by age and bad treatment and second-rate in their conception, they had a glow of passion, there was nothing in the room of any value, but the effect was lovely. It was magnificent, and yet austere. Philip felt that it offered the very spirit of old Spain. Athene was in the middle of showing him the inside of the Bogueno, with its beautiful ornamentation and secret drawers, when a tall girl with two plaits of bright brown hair hanging down her back came in. Mother says, dinner's ready and waiting, and I'm going to, to bring it in as soon as you sit down. Come and shake hands with Mr. Carey, Sally. He turned to Philip. Isn't she enormous? She's my oldest. How old are you, Sally? Fifteen, father. Come next June. I christened her Maria del Sol because she was my first child and did, I dedicated her to the glorious son of Castile. But her mother calls her Sally and her brother Pudding Face. The girl smiled shyly. She had even white teeth and blushed. She was well set up for her, tall for her age, with pleasant grey eyes and a broad forehead. She had red cheeks. Go and tell your mother to come in and shake hands with Mr. Carey before he sits down. Mother says she'll come in after dinner, but she hasn't washed herself yet. Then we'll go in and see her ourselves. He mustn't eat the Yorkshire pudding till he's shaken the hand who made it. Philip followed his host into the kitchen. It was small and much overcrowded. There had been a lot of noise, but it stopped as soon as the stranger entered. There was a large table in the middle, and around it, eager for dinner, were seated Athenley's children. A woman was standing at the oven, taking out baked potatoes one by one. "'Here's Mr. Carey, Betty,' said Athenley. "'Fancy bringing him in, he him in here. What'll he think?' She wore a dirty apron, and the sleeves of her cotton dress were turned up above her elbows. She had curly pins in her hair, curling pins in her hair. Mrs. Athenley was a large woman, a good three inches taller than her husband, fair with blue eyes and a kindly expression. She had been a handsome creature, but advancing years and the bearing of many children had made her fat and blousy. Her blue eyes had become pale, her skin was coarse and red, the colour had gone out of her hair. She straightened herself, wiped her hands on her apron and held it out. "'You're welcome, sir,' she said in a slow voice with an accent that seemed oddly familiar to Philip. Athenley said you were very kind to him in the hospital.' hospital. Now you must be introduced to the livestock, said Athenley. This is Thorpe. He pointed to a chubby boy with brown, boy with curly hair. He's my eldest son, heir to the title, estates and responsibilities of the family. There is Athelstan, Harold, Edward. He pointed his forefinger to three smaller boys, all rosy, healthy and smiling, though when they felt Philip's smiling eyes upon them, they looked shyly down at their plates. Now the girl's in order, Maria del Sol, pudding face, said one of the small boys. Your sense of humour is rudimentary, my son. Maria del Sol Mercedes, Maria del Pilar, Maria del Concepcion, Maria del Rosario. I call them Sally, Molly, Connie, Rosie and Jane, said Mrs. Athenley. 
Now, Athena, you go into your own room and I'll send you your dinner. I'll let the children come in afterwards for a bit when I've washed them. My dear, if I had the naming of you, I should have called you Maria of the Soap Suds. You're always torturing these wretched brats with soaps. Soap. You go first, Mr. Carrier. I shall never get him to sit down and eat his dinner. Athena and Philip installed themselves in the great monkish chairs, and Sally brought them in two plates of beef, Yorkshire pudding, baked potatoes and cabbage. Athena took sixpence out of his pocket and sent her for a jug of beer. I hope you didn't have the table laid here on my account, said Philip. I should have been quite happy to eat with the children. Oh no, I always have my meals by myself. I like these antique customs. I don't think that women ought to sit down at the table with men. It ruins conversation, and I'm sure it's very bad for them. It puts ideas in their heads, and women are never at ease with themselves when they have ideas. Both the host and guest ate with a hearty appetite. Did you ever taste such Yorkshire pudding? No one can make it like my wife. That's the advantage of not marrying a lady. You noticed she wasn't a lady, didn't you? It was an awkward question, and Philip did not know how to answer it. I never thought about it, he said, lamely. Athena laughed. He had a peculiarly joyous laugh. No, she's not a lady, nor anything like it. Her father was a farmer, and she's never bothered about H's in her life. We've had twelve children, and nine of them are alive. I tell her it's about time she stopped, but she's an obstinate woman. She's got into the habit of it now, and I don't believe she'll be satisfied till she's had twenty. At that moment, Sally came in with the beer, and having poured out a glass for Philip, went to the other side of the table to pour some out for her father. He put his hand around her waist. Did you ever see such a handsome, strapping girl? Only fifteen, and she might be twenty. Look at her cheeks. She's never had a day's illness in her life. It'll be a lucky man who marries her, won't it, Sally? Sally listened to all this with a slight, slow smile, not much embarrassed, for she was accustomed to her father's outbursts, but with an easy modesty which was very attractive. Don't let your dinner get cold, father, she said, drawing herself away from his arm. You'll call when you're ready for your pudding, won't you? They were left alone, and Athenely lifted the pewter tankard to his lips. He drank long and deep. My word, is there anything better than English beer, he said. Let us thank God for simple pleasures, roasting beef and rice pudding, a good appetite and beer. I was married to a lady once, my God, don't marry a lady, my boy. Philip laughed. He was exhilarated by the scene, the funny little man in his odd clothes, the panelled room and the Spanish furniture, the English fare, the whole thing had an exquisite incongruity. You laugh, my boy, but you can't imagine marrying beneath you. You want a wife who's an intellectual equal. Your head is crammed full of ideas of comradeship, stuff and nonsense, my boy. A man doesn't want to talk politics to his wife. And what do you think I care for Betty's views on the differential calculus? A man wants a wife who can cook his dinner and look after his children. I've tried both and I know. Let's have pudding. He clapped his hands and presently Sally came. When she took away the plates, Philip wanted to get up and help her. But Athenely stopped him. Let her alone, my boy. She doesn't want you to fuss about, do you, Sally? And she won't think it rude of you to sit still while she waits upon you. She don't care a damn for chivalry, do you, Sally? No, father, answered Sally demurely. Do you know what I'm talking about, Sally? No, father, but you know mother doesn't like you to swear. Athenely laughed boisterously. Sally brought them plates of rice pudding, rich, creamy, and luscious. Athenely attacked his with gusto. One of the rules of this house is that Sunday dinner should never alter. It is a ritual, roast beef and rice pudding for 50 Sundays in the year. On Easter Sunday, lamb and green peas, and at Michel Mars, 
roast goose and applesauce. Thus we preserve the traditions of our people. When Sally marries, she will forget many of the wise things I have taught her, but she will never forget that if you want to be good and happy, you must eat on Sundays roast beef and rice pudding. You'll call when you're ready for cheese, said Sally impassively. Do you know the legend of Halicon, said Athenly. Philip was growing used to his rapid leaping from one subject to another. When the kingfisher flying over the sea is exhausted, his mate places herself beneath him and bears him along upon her stronger wings. That is what a man wants in a wife, the Halicon. I lived with my first wife for three years. She was a lady. She had fifteen hundred a year, and we used to give nice little dinner parties in our little bed red brick house in Kensington. She was a charming woman. They all said so, the barristers and their wives who dined with us, and the literary stockbrokers and the budding politicians. Oh, she was a charming woman. She made me go to church in a silk hat and a frock coat. She took me to the classical concerts. She was very fond of lectures on Sunday afternoon, and she sat down to breakfast every morning at 8.30, and if I was late, the breakfast was cold, and she read the right books, admired the right pictures, and adored the right music. My God, how that woman bored me. She is charming still, and she lives in this little red brick house in Kensington with Morris papers and Whistler's etchings on the walls, and gives the same nice little dinner parties with veal creams and ice for, from Gunther's as she did twenty years ago. Philip did not ask by what means the ill-matched couple had separated, but Athenly told him, Betty's not my wife, you know. My wife wouldn't divorce me. The children are bastards, every jack one of them, and are they any the worse for that? Betty was one of the maids in the little red brick house in Kensington. Four or five years ago I was on my uppers, and I had seven children. I went to my wife and asked her to help me. She said she'd make an allowance if I'd give Betty up and go abroad. Can you see me giving Betty up? We starved for a while instead. My wife said I loved the gutter. I've degenerated. I've come down in the world. I earn three pounds a week as a press agent to the linen draper, and every day I thank God that I'm not in that little red brick house in Kensington. Sally brought him the cheddar cheese, and Athene went on with his fluent conversation. It's the greatest mistake in the world to think that one needs money to bring up a family. You need money to make them gentlemen and ladies, but I don't want my children to be ladies and gentlemen. Sally's going to earn her living in another year. She's to be apprenticed to a dressmaker, aren't you, Sally? And the boys are going to serve their country. I want them all to go into the Navy. It's a jolly life and a healthy life. Good food, good pay, and a pension to end their days on. Philip lit his pipe, Athenely smoked cigarettes of Havana tobacco, which he rolled himself. Sally cleared away, Philip was reserved, and it embarrassed him to be the recipient of so many confidences. Athenely, with his powerful voice in his diminutive body, with his bombast, with his foreign look, with his emphasis, was an astonishing creature. He reminded Philip a good deal of Cronshaw. He appeared to have the same independence of thought, the same bohemianism, but he had an infinitely more vivacious temperament. His mind was coarser, and he had not that interest in the abstract which made Cronshaw's conversation so captivating. Athenly was very proud of the country family to which he belonged. He showed Philip photographs of an Elizabethan mansion and told him, The Athenleys have lived there for seven centuries, my boy. Ah, if you saw the chimney pieces and the ceilings. There was a cupboard in the wainscoting, and from this he took a family tree. He showed it to Philip with childlike satisfaction. It was indeed imposing. You see how the family names recur? Thorpe, Athelstan, Harold, Edward. I've used the family names for my sons, and the girls, you see, I've given Spanish names too. 
An uneasy feeling came to Philip that possibly the whole story was an elaborate imposture, not told with any base motive, but merely from a wish to impress, startle and amaze. Athenley had told him that he was at Winterchester, but Philip, sensitive to differences of manner, did not feel that his host had the characteristics of a man educated at a great public school. While he pointed out the great alliances which his ancestors had formed, Philip amused himself by wondering whether Athenley was not the son of some tradesman in Winchester, auctioneer or coal merchant, and whether a similarity of surname was not his only connection with the ancient family whose tree he was displaying. Golly. All right, there we go. There's that chapter. I wonder if Philip's right about that. Oh, have your say about this chapter over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.